Shakespeare Hall, Tableau of Aaron, and the Brennans, last night but one, for the benefit of Mrs. R.A. Brennan, new songs, new sketches, etc., Dublin Dan, the rollicking singer and dancer, Wobbleton, the dundreary of the age, in new songs, the Brennans, in new burlesque operetta. A grand matinee will be given on Saturday afternoon, April 13th, at 2 and a half p.m., children 10 cents, ladies 25 cents, Brennan and Pearson, managers, A.J. Wadsworth, agent. I the air with the greatest of A daring young man on the dying Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 36. Tonight, my tea is my own clone of McNulty's Special Mixed, and by that I mean I bought the constituents. Now, I know the constituents because I spoke to the folks at McNulty's, which is, uh, by the way, the grand old man of tea shops in Manhattan. It's in the West Village. And they told me that the recipe was eight parts Formosa Oolong, two parts of Sencha Premium Grade, which is a Japanese green, and one part Salon Dimbula. That last one I'd never had. So anyway, I bought the constituents, and this is my clone of that same tea. Here we go. Mm. Oh, God damn, that's good. It is a, an unusually unique blend. It's like nothing I've had from any other tea shop. That Sencha Premium Grade gives it a lovely undertone of greenness, which I usually don't appreciate, especially when blended with blacks. That that often doesn't work, but man, with the Formosa Oolong and the green and black overtones, it is superlative. Can't recommend it enough. Thank you for coming to my tea talk. Now, on to that ad that I just read. The word burlesque threw me a little bit. I mean, it wasn't a big surprise to me to have confirmation that the word burlesque shifted its meaning between 1871 and now, but it was it was a little hump for me to get over when I saw the word burlesque uh, in front of operetta and uh, I confirmed at the bottom of that ad, it said children 10 cents. So clearly uh, burlesque didn't mean anything like what it's, it's come to mean nowadays. Uh, from Wikipedia, 
Victorian burlesque, sometimes known as travesty or extravaganza, was popular in London theaters between the 1830s and the 1890s. It took the form of musical theater parody in which a well-known opera, play, or ballet was adapted into a broad comic play, usually a musical play, often risque in style, mocking the theatrical and musical conventions and styles of the original work, and quoting or pastiching text or music from the original work. The comedy often stemmed from the incongruity and absurdity of the classical subjects, with realistic historical dress and settings being juxtaposed with the modern activities portrayed by the actors. So it was basically silly musical parody. Uh, should be quite a familiar form to anyone with, with any uh, knowledge of theater. Now, I'm going to read from another version of that same ad because this earlier one from April 11th uh, of that same week, last week, 150 years ago, has a little bit more information on that show. Tableau of Aaron, Panorama of Ireland in America, don't fail to visit the land of your fathers. Erin, her green hills, valleys, ruins, her monasteries, castles, etc., etc., east, west, north, and south, Dublin, Kilkenny, Queenstown, Limerick, Antrim, Kingstown, Waterford, Cork, Londonderry, Belfast, Galway, etc., etc., the lakes of Killarney by sunset, Ross Castle by moonlight, illumination of St. Patrick's Cathedral, illumination of Kilkenny and its cathedral. Mrs. E. A. Brennan will sing Ireland's pathetic and soul-stirring ballads each evening. The Brennans, in their burlesque, operatic sketches, etc., etc. Nora Rathleen and the Widow by Mrs. Brennan. Dublin Dan, the Irish Guide, Mr. Tim Cohen. Wobbledon, an English fop, Mr. James Shannon. Sambo, slightly off-color, Mr. Fred Witham. Tourist, Mr. Brennan. Departure for America, Kathleen gives a good account of Dan. Wobbledon takes a colored gemmen to America as a novelty, all ready for the voyage. In honor of old Ireland, let's have the Krushkinlan Irish Reel finale. Descriptive, historical, and humorous lecture by Mr. R.A. Brennan. Professor Hodgkins, pianist and organist, admission 35 cents, reserved seats 50 cents. It goes on to tell about the matinee and the other details. So, first of all, that word wobbledon. I looked that up in Wikipedia, and that is... I'm sorry, not wobbledon. That's the name of the character. They said in the first ad that uh, he was the Dundreary of the... Let me see here. Dundreary of the Age. Yeah, Wobbleton, the Dundreary of the Age. And a Dundreary, uh, this is from Wikipedia. Lord Dundreary is a character of the 1858 British play Our American Cousin by Tom Taylor. He is the personification of a good-natured, brainless aristocrat. 
So there's a little bit of cultural context there. Now, as far as this playing in Syracuse, if you don't know about the Irish population of Syracuse and its importance within the politics of Syracuse and hence the politics of New York State and the country, then I highly recommend going back to a whole bunch of my previous episodes which focus on the Irish in Syracuse and especially the ugly racial politics and the race baiting of Irish against African American around 1868. Now, there was a song that they mentioned there, Krushkin Lan. And I looked that up. Uh, I recommend going to the show notes. Among other things, there is a YouTube link that you can follow and hear a rendition of that Irish folk song. Krushkin Lan is the English form of the Gaelic title Krushkin Lan, which means the full little jug. And that YouTube is link is to a Clancy Brothers performance of that song. So why did I choose that ad to read to you at the top? Well, I got a bee in my bonnet to give to you a sense of what it was like to step out on the street and to go about one's day in the Syracuse of 1871. What did it look like? What did it smell like? What did it sound like? So, on that last one in particular, I wanted to get some sense of sonic fidelity because it occurred to me, I don't tend to populate my mental landscapes with sound. That might be because my hearing sucks. I have a hearing loss. So, for instance, I am not into bird watching, and I've always suspected that that has a lot to do with the fact that I tend not to hear birds. So I just don't tend to make that a part of my imagine, uh, imagination. Uh, the landscapes I build just don't tend to uh, include that element. And I wanted to make an effort in this episode to answer the question, what did 80, 1871 sound like? So this is going to be me trying to paint you a picture with smell and sound. And by the way, that second item, smell, surprisingly difficult to get a fix on. One assumes that since these streets were often muddy, and you got to figure that a lot of that mud consisted of shit, uh, it must have reeked to high heaven. Uh, especially since a lot of these town council meetings are preoccupied with putting in sewers into these new streets, most of which are still not even paved. They're just dust when it's dry and mud when it's wet. But when I went to the newspaper archives and searched for words such as smell, odor, reek, etc., etc., within 20 words of street, I found almost nothing. So if the streets stank as much as I assumed that they did, then one of two things must be true. Either the people were very, very nose-blind, or the newspapers kept that quiet because they didn't want people in other cities to uh, point and laugh at their stinky streets. So on we go to April 11th, 
1871. This is from the City Notes. Splendid grass-growing weather, this. The sprinkle of this morning has relieved us of the disagreeable dust. A reflection of what was undoubtedly a fire of some magnitude was discernible in a westerly direction about eight o'clock last evening. A number of petitions were presented and referred to the property proper committees. The Committee on Highways reported favorably on the laying of wooden pavement in West Street from Fayette to Tully, Wyoming Street from Fayette to Otisco, Salina Street from the junction of Warren and Salina to Burt, East Genesee Street from Orange to Almond, Jefferson Street from Montgomery to Orange. They also reported favorable on the laying of a 24-inch tile sewer in Marcellus and Walton Streets from Ontario to the creek for a five-feet flagstone walk on Clinton Street and for several plank sidewalks. Proposals for building and repairing plank sidewalks for the year, for making alterations in the City Hall building, and for furnishing lamp posts, etc., were submitted by the clerk. They were referred to the Committee of the Whole. Hugh here. Forgive me for reading that boring crap, but in this context, that is anything but boring. That's vital. I want to paint a picture of what life was like on the street in Syracuse in 1871, and I can't do that without telling you just how much energy the city was putting into what those streets were going to look like, what the experience of walking those streets was going to be like. And those two paragraphs that I just read you, those were the types of paragraphs which filled these pages day in, day out, for years and for decades. People were wrangling over this because they didn't want to spend a whole lot of money, but they wanted their city to look good. So all of this wrangling over street coverings and sewers tells us a lot about what was important to the people of Syracuse. Now this last bit, this is interesting. The Committee on Fire Limits reported in favor of extending the fire limits and granting certain privileges. The report was adopted. I've done a little bit of digging, and I still don't know what fire limits are. I am operating under the assumption that it has something to do with the area within which the fire department is obligated to operate, the, the area of, of obligated coverage for the fire department. I don't know if that's true. I ran a search on the phrase fire limits, and I got back hundreds upon hundreds of results, but None of them actually explain what they are. I can't figure it out from context, at least not yet. There's a million references to fire limits within these common council meetings and city notes, but none of them explain what they are. Obviously, this is a follow-up to episode 33, where I talked about the importance of fire in the lives of the citizens of this time and just how preoccupied with it they were. Uh, also, as a follow-up to episode 33, keep your eye on what I said about Lee's surrender at Appomattox. And 
here we go again with another story about fire. Uh, this is from Wednesday, April 12th, the Daily Journal. Town News. House struck by lightning in Geddes. At half past three yesterday, during a storm, a thunderbolt descended upon the dwelling of Mr. Brown in the village of Geddes. The electrical visitor alighted first upon the chimney, set, uh, scattering the bricks and ripping up the shingles on its passage through the roof. The chimney extends only a short distance below the chamber ceiling, resting upon a wood support. The portion of the chimney inside the attic was completely demolished, leaving the upper portion suspended by the roofboard. The subtle fluid here divided, apart following the pipe to the kitchen stove, summarily ousting the tea kettle and stove covers, and slamming open the doors. The other part went down the pipe of the sitting room stove, blowing off the top and knocking the mica out of the door. Although no aperture was found through the floors, the fluid must have made a way for itself, as in the cellar the joists were found somewhat shattered and the cellar wall cracked. There was no one in the house at the time but Mrs. Brown, who received no injury more than a severe stunning. As soon as she recovered self-possession, she ran upstairs, where she found a pile of carpet rags in the attic on fire. Mrs. Brown was able to extinguish the fire and prevent serious damage. Two hens in the yard were killed by the shock. For some time, there was a strong sulfur sulfurous smell in the house. Hugh here. Isn't that marvelous? Go back and listen to that again, and hear the way they thought of lightning in mystical, almost anthropomorphic terms. They were clearly not just preoccupied with lightning in particular as an instigator of fire, but scared. On to April 13th, again, Daily Journal. Nellie Stone, a Water Street bummer, originally from Oswego, was arraigned for being drunk in that notorious locality, the Locks on Water Street. She was shouting at the top of her voice at the time of her arrest. She was sentenced to pay a fine of $10 or go to the penitentiary for 60 days. Hugh here. Bummer seems to be synonymous with the word we now uh, say as bum. Uh, bummer seems to have been shortened to bum. Uh, so there's an example of a sound from 1871, a drunk lady screaming in the locality of the locks. Same day, same paper, Lewis Bagels was arraigned, charged on oath of Samuel Rooney with immoderate driving in the streets on the 25th of March. He denied the charge, but witnesses were sworn who testified to having seen Bagels running the horse between the first ward and the central portion of the city. He was sentenced to pay a fine of $10 or go to the penitentiary for 30 days. Paid fine. Hugh here. So that is another follow-up from the Flame Wars episode, and that gives you another facet of the sonic landscape. You've got hotheads running their horses dangerously fast 
through the streets of this crowded city. People are screaming, jumping out of the way, yelling in anger. On to city notes of April 13th. Again, the journal. The magnolia trees, early bloomers, are in flower. There's a smell for you. The walls of the Central Baptist Church are being rapidly laid up. So, a lot of banging, a lot of yelling, a lot of dust during the construction of the Central Baptist Church. <sighs> Nothing worthy of mention has transpired in the shoemaker strike. This was a pretty big deal at the time. I've been reading articles about how a couple of thousand uh, shoemakers were out of work, and the ads are peppering the papers uh, for uh, strike breakers, for, for people who are skilled, who have uh, shoemaking skills to come work. Numbers of our sportsmen are enjoying pigeon shooting near Constantia. Tomorrow, the public schools of the city will close for the spring vacation. Again, keep that in mind, and keep in mind Lee's surrender at Appomattox. The kids are getting out of school. It's about to be a lot noisier because these pe these kids now have time on their hands and spring is giving way to summer. The tailors have again resumed work, having reached the point which gave rise to the recent strike. The recent rains have done wonders for the grass and lawns especially begin to present a decidedly green appearance. So again, everything is smelling fresher and wetter, and the city is blooming. On to the next day, April 14th. Frost last night. The last day of school. Again, kids are getting out of school. It's, it's going to get more boisterous. Strawberries and tomatoes are among the delicacies afforded by our market. There's another couple of smells for you. And I've got to say, one odd little thread that I've noticed it, during six years of immersion in these newspapers is an obsession with strawberries. And I'm talking specifically strawberries, not any other fruit or vegetable. Of course, there was a lot of gardening and horticulture material in these papers, much more so than we see today. But I'm telling you, there was a specific obsession with strawberries, and I'll get to uh, more about that in a minute. Stylish young gentlemen are appearing in suits, all of the same material, hats, vest, pants, and gaiter overshoes being all alike. Now they put stylish in quotes there, so I think they were throwing some shade on this style. The single stroke on the city hall bell last evening was occasioned by some person tampering with one of the signal boxes. A lot of mischief going on in this, in this city. Now is the time to erect bird houses in the gardens and dooryards as the feathered songsters are preparing to locate for the coming summer. So we've got bird song added into this cacophony of urban, urban boisterousness. The one-armed sailor, organ grinder, who has furnished free street music to our citizens for some time past, has given way to a blind hand organist. 
Want to hear something sad? I tried to figure out who that was, and before long, I I don't want to say gave up. Uh, I will say that uh, I it became clear to me that I would have had to have spent more time than I had to try to figure out exactly who that one-armed sailor organ grinder and who the blind hand organist were, because I quickly realized that there were a whole lot of amputees roaming the streets of Syracuse at this time, and it hit me. I haven't been including in my visual representation of that landscape amputees, of which there were many just six years after the end of the Civil War. So that's another element for me to include in this unique landscape that I'm building in my mind. April 14th, again, when we return after this brief message. Amusements, complimentary concert for Miss Delay at the First Presbyterian Church, Friday evening, April 14th at 8 o'clock. Tickets, $1. For sale at the Book and Music Store and also at the store of Mr. A.K. Hoyt, 37 Warren Street. And we're back. So again, we're sticking with April 14th, 1871, the Syracuse Journal. Now this is a review of that same show that I just read the advertisement for. Musical, the organ concert to be given in the First Presbyterian Church this evening, complimentary to Miss Dillay, promises to be unusually attractive. In addition to the home artists who kindly lend their assistance on this occasion and who are so favorably known to the musical public as to need no word of commendation from us, it is gratifying to announce that Miss Case of New York has also consented to appear. To those who have heard her rich voice or are Acquainted with her worthy reputation, it is sufficient barely to make this announcement. To others, we may be permitted to give assurance of a rare musical treat. No pains have been spared to render this entertainment one of the choicest ever given in this city. The reputation of the singers, as well as the excellent selection of pieces, justifies us in urging the attendances of every lover of music. Hugh here. The article continues with a review of the Tableau of Aaron, which was the subject of that first advertisement. This very worthy entertainment is rapidly growing in public favor, and the attendance is constantly increasing. Last night, a large audience was present, and all were much pleased. Mr. and Mrs. Brennan intersperse a variety of song and colloquies which are exceedingly popular. They are excellent delineators of Irish character, and Mrs. B. has a particularly pleasing voice. Mrs. Brennan is to take her benefit tonight, and we bespeak for her a full house. And the article goes on to give a lengthy testimonial signed off on by about uh, 20 people. And tickets are on sale, blah, blah, blah. One more thing I wanted to mention about that uh, that Tableau of Aaron performance. I looked up uh, that same 
advertisement to see if I could find other cleaner instances that were would be easier for me to read. I couldn't find anything with that character of Sambo except five instances of this same ad in a Syracuse paper. Now, I'll be the first to admit that statistically that doesn't prove anything, but my instinct based on six years of running queries in these historical newspaper databases tells me that that is a pretty solid indicator that that character of Sambo only appeared in the Syracuse performances of this operetta. That doesn't speak terribly well of Syracuse's uh, sensibilities in 1871, but there you go. Take it for what it's worth. On to the Syracuse Daily Journal of April 15th. The water is being let into the canal. Okay, so you've got a dried-up, crusty canal with water being let into it. There's another sight and smell for you. Again, April 15th, Central New York News, Oswego County. Now, I'm reading this to you because I find that this paints a particularly vivid visual picture of not just life in Syracuse, but life feeding into and supporting Syracuse. This was the the kernel around which this episode formed. It's what gave me the idea of uh, painting a sense picture of Syracuse in 1871. Phoenix, April 11th, 1871. To the editor of the Syracuse Journal, this unusually quiet village is now not only disturbed by the engine whistle of the Midland and the DL and W railroads, but our dreams are frequently disturbed by the whistle of the engine on the branch of the Syracuse Northern, but we are beginning to get reconciled to our fate. We are waiting anxiously for navigation to open when Captain McCoy with his beautiful little steamer, will set sail and the denizens of Phoenix be able to occasionally get sight of the enterprising city of Syracuse. The steamer has been admirably fitted up by Captain Mackey, her boiler and engine entirely overhauled and put in the best of condition. Her hull has been handsomely painted, and she really looks like a thing of life. Not content with this, Captain Mackey has associated with him Captain Silas Huntley, the proprietor of the steamer that plied between this village and Syracuse, known as the John Greenway, a careful and trustworthy gentleman, and they have constructed a barge or boat which has been christened the Onondaga. This boat is 96 feet long, has two decks. The upper one contains 1,440 square feet and designed for the use of dancing parties and is capable of accommodating nine acts. This deck is surrounded by a balustrade of about three feet in height, and over it is to be an awning. The lower deck contains about the same number of feet on which are the cabins, each of which contain about 224 square feet. The bow cabin is furnished with a bar in which is to be kept cooling drinks, cigars, etc. Under the cabin are a couple of large tanks for the 
convenience of picnic parties in storing supplies. The stern cabin contains a private sitting room, pantry, and a cook room designed for use by the coffee pot brigade that usually accompany picnic parties. The whole lower deck is to be sealed and grained up to the railings. In fact, the craft is built for a pleasure boat and is to be fitted up accordingly. The headquarters of the boat is to be at the foot of Salina, Do Salina Locks in the first ward of Syracuse until a landing can be secured in the lake, when she will be removed to such point as may be provided and kept in readiness to answer the calls of all those who may desire her services. Her capacity is estimated as being sufficient to accommodate 1,000 persons. The proprietors are reliable and trustworthy, and no doubt will answer the expectations of all those who may patronize them. They have in incurred an expense of $7,000 in the trial to please the citizens of Syracuse and vicinity, and we feel confident that they will meet with a merited compensation for the outlay, or we have placed much too high an estimate on the people of that locality. The Onondaga will be ready for use by May 1st, and it is hoped she may not long wait a landing in the lake when one seemingly could be secured at a small expense. So there's a vivid description of life on and around the canals, and especially the Oswego Canal up to Lake Ontario. I have to admit, I either didn't know or had forgotten that it was common to see steamers on the Oswego Canal. I honestly didn't know it could accommodate steamers. Now, that name, John Greenway, uh, now that I've done some research, I know was the name of apparently either one of the and, and maybe the biggest brewer in western New York. Apparently he had a flair for the uh, generous and ostentatious. He did a lot of events that uh, ingratiated him to the public, usually involving his boats. Uh, here's one from April 22nd, 1870, the Oswego Press. The Bay of Quint is clear of ice. The steamer John Greenway has commenced her trips to Belleville. 1874, uh, the Troy Daily Times, March 13th. John Greenway of Syracuse has just had built at Buffalo a propeller whose freight capacity is 50 tons. It is to ply between Syracuse and Utica, Rochester, and other places along the Erie and Oswego canals for the purpose of carrying lager beer and ales on ice during the warm months. Uh, here's a fascinating one from July 25, 1874, the Syracuse Morning Standard. Spiritualists Grove Meeting at Phoenix. The steamer John Greenway leaves Geddes Dock at 8 a.m. on Sunday, giving a pleasant ride on the lake and arrive at Phoenix an hour and a half earlier than by any other boat. The Geddes Street cars leave at 7.30, connecting with the boat. Syracuse Daily Courier, August 20th, 1874. The steamer John Greenway will hereafter make her regular day trips to the lake, leaving Geddes Dock at 10 a.m. and 1 3 and 5 p.m. Parties wishing to go fishing will find fishing boats in good order there, 
but must furnish their own tackle, Captain Kinney. Now, remember when I told you to keep the strawberries in mind? Here we are at April 15th, 1871, the Daily Journal. Early strawberries, Mr. Henry Burt, a gardener residing near Brighton, presented us this morning with some specimen strawberries of his raising, which are almost as large and fully as ripe and sweet as though matured by nature. They are of the Wilson seedling variety. They are a very pleasant they are very pleasant reminders of the coming of those days when the season will take the place of hot houses in producing this most delicious fruit. Hugh here. Now, the reason I got on this track of noticing all of the articles about strawberries is because way back early on when I was doing my genealogy research, one of the articles about my great-grand-uncle, Robert Charles Yeaman, was also an article about strawberries. This is from the October 1st, 1895 Evening Herald of Syracuse. Second growth of strawberries. R.E. Yeaman, they got his name wrong, it's R.C. Yeaman, of number 310 South Salina Street has a novelty in the shape of a basket of second growth of strawberries. They were picked yesterday by a farmer living on the road between Auburn and Port Byron. The berries are well-formed and finely matured. I have my own little theory about this obsession with strawberries. I think they may have been emblematic of the fusion of rural and urban that Syracuse was so well known for. Syracuse was a profoundly rural town, as you can tell when you read the endless newspaper articles about the mechanics fair and all of the crafts and machine items that the farmers and their families brought in to the city, as well as all the handmade items such as uh, woolens and all of the produce that the farmers were constantly carting in to the city. And Syracuse was also known as a, a burgeoning, th uh, thriving center of industry, particularly mechanical creations. And I, I get the sense that strawberries, again, were a, a visually vivid picture to put in words into a newspaper. And they were also a symbol of the industriousness of the hinterlands, being brought in to service the booming economy of the city. That's just my, my theory. So, I've done my best to paint a picture, but it's all been pretty vague. It's only third or fourth hand at best. We see through a glass darkly, and we're reaching back through 150 years of time. So, I can only do so much to bring you the sights and smells and sounds, or can I? I'm just getting going, folks. This is where we hit the good stuff. Syracuse Daily Journal, April 15th, 1871. Boys who indulge in squeal jerks may be interested in the statement that the authorities of an eastern city gave a solemn notice that 
all persons who shall hereafter disturb the public peace by means of an instrument known as the devil's fiddle, squawker, or any kindred instrument, will be charged with committing a common nuisance and will be prosecuted therefore. Hugh here. Oh, that really got my curiosity boiling, because as you can re remember from episode 33, I was speculating about that squawker device and what exactly it would have been, and to what degree it was specifically tied to the annual celebration of Lee's surrender at Appomattox and the clear connections between the squawker and the quote-unquote young America. Now here's another article about the same thing. From two days later, April 17th, this one is in the Syracuse Daily Standard. The previous one was from the journal. The authorities of Nantucket prohibit the musical toy of the period and give notice that all persons who shall hereafter disturb the public peace by means of an instrument known as the devil's fiddle, squawker, or any kindred instrument will be charged with committing a common nuisance and will be prosecuted therefore. The quiet of Nantucket is not to be broken. So there you see two versions of the same story. For some reason, the Syracuse Daily Journal printed the, the vague, uh, coy version that just refers to Nantucket as an eastern city, whereas the Standard prints the version that actually names Nantucket. But the important thing about these two is that they gave me much more to go on, because at that point I knew that the squawker was also known as a devil's fiddle. And that turned out to be a key for me to unlock a wealth of articles about this pernicious noisemaker. Now, I'm going to go way back because it's important to me to try to tease out whatever connections there may be to the celebrations of Lee's surrender at Appomattox on uh, April 9th, 1865. So now I'm going back to 1848, March 14th, the Ontario Repository in Canandaigua, New York. The People versus Wesley Slout. Uh, these defendants, five in number, were indicted for a riot which took place in Canadas sometime in January last. They were charged with having riotously, wantonly, and unlawfully assembled together at, around, or near the house of one Isaac Stevenson of said town, with diverse bells, tin pans, horns, fiddles, squawkers, guns, pistols, etc., etc., with the intent, as appearing from the statements of the district attorney in his opening, and from the proof in the case, uh, in the cause of honoring the nuptials of him, the said Stevenson, which had taken place the day before, with what is commonly called in the town of Canadice a horning. It further appeared that under the common law or custom of said Canadice, this band or orchestra was regularly organized, under the guidance of a captain, and ready on all occasions of this kind to give a gratuitous display of native musical talent, and that the complainant had, on this particular occasion, extended an invitation to some of the non-commissioned officers of said company to attend and give him a horning bee when he was married. But 
The concert not satisfying the high expectations which he had probably formed of its excellence, but on the contrary being conducted with so much discord as to be in terrorem populi, and cause him to jump out of bed in great trepidation at the imminent peril of his household, he determined to nip the growing taste for instrumental music which had thus been exhibited by the rising generation in the bud, and accordingly placed them in the hands of those whose duty it is to make sundry inquiries in relation to the quiet and well-being of the body of the county of Ontario, it was contended by Mr. Howell, in behalf of the defendants, that the offense, as proved, did not amount to a riot, that it was nothing more than an unlawful assembly. He cited several authorities to show the necessity of some violence being offered at the House, together with a previous intent to commit some wrong before the charge of riot could be sustained. So... That is an example of noisemakers being used in a mischievous way at a wedding. And there's going to be more of this. This seems to be a nasty little tradition. And I am not 100% sure what a squawker is in this case. Given the context of tin pans, horns, fiddles, squawkers, etc., I think there's a really good chance that uh, squawker meant in 1848 the same thing it meant in 1871, but I'm not sure. Now, on the other hand, jumping forward to the Dansville Advertiser of Dansville, New York, February 16th, 1871, there is an ad for a pharmacy, uh, drugs and medicines, and Under this section of where they mention a few specialties, they say dolls from the smallest squawker to almost life-size. So I included that to show you how there is some obfuscation of the meaning of the word squawker. So it's hard for me to determine exactly when this device came into common knowledge and common usage because often the term is used vaguely, and I know of at least one instance, the one I just read you, where it's used to describe something that is clearly not the thing that I'm going to talk about. Future Hugh here. This is killing me because I spent so much time hemming and hawing and stuttering in this episode, but I'm sticking to my guns. I'm going to follow my no editing rule. However, I can jump in here and let you know that the word that I was struggling to read in the following article was shrieks. Got that? Shrieks. Oswego Press, Wednesday, February 22nd, 1871. The latest nuisance introduced by Young America for the annoyance of the elders is a new toy called the rooster. Hugh here. This is the first instance I could find of this noisemaker being called a rooster. Back to the article. It consists of an empty tin can of any size, open at the top and with a hole punched at the bottom. Through the hole is drawn a common shoestring, or corset lacer, with a knot tied in one end to prevent it slipping through. The string is then thoroughly waxed, and the most unearthly... Uh, 
unearthly something. Bricks? No. Uh, <laughs> I thought I knew what that word was, but I don't. Uh, the most unearthly something are produced by sliding the fingers over it. An exchange says, thus much on the latest juvenile instrument of torture. It is a Western invention. We heard it in St. Louis last winter and can testify of our own knowledge to the blood-curdling character of the sounds evoked from the simple appliances described. To rosin the string is better than to wax it. We thus take the first step toward introducing this horror into the bosom of our peaceful community through pure malevolence. We know no means of doing our kind a greater harm. When the enterprising boys of the city practically develop the hints here given and wake the dead with their simple but touching oyster can roosters, we expect to see some of our most respectable citizens tear their hair and curse the day they were born. Such is the power of music over the human feelings. Hugh here. I thought that article was particularly... Uh, <laughs> uh, what's the, wh wow? Words are leaving me. Uh, particularly uh, sadistic to its readership, sort of cackling over. Here we've got this piece of information that we could keep to ourselves, but we're going to put it out there, knowing full well that it's going to result in the spread of this incredibly annoying noisemaker, and it's going to piss everyone off. The Evening Star, Washington, D.C., March, March 17th, 1871. The diabolical Rootser. They, they made a typo there. It's supposed to be Rooster, but it's, it says Rootser. Nuisance. Editor, Star. The mischievous little boys of the city have invented a new toy out of a tin can with a hole in the bottom to which is attached a string which is passed through the hole and by using rosin, and pressing the string between the fingers, it produces a most unearthly sound, resembling an ungreased cartwheel or a mangy dog in the last agonies of dissolution. The shrieks of this infernal machine are heard in the streets day and night. It should be summarily stopped by Major Richard's boys, Marcus. So there you see the first instance of a trend that runs through all of these articles. People are struggling to describe the horrible sound that th this thing makes, and they almost always try to describe it in terms of animal sounds. And I guess I get the sense that that's why it was so unnerving. It was like some weird, uncanny animal noise. Now, going to Brooklyn. Brooklyn Daily Eagle, Monday, March 20th, 1871. Le Co-Chantant. The ingenuity of the boys of Brooklyn has, within the past week, made itself apparent by the appearance of a new toy, a one-stringed lute, with which they parade the streets of our city and delight the residents, more or less, with the strains of sweet music. They discourse from this new invention. 
In the beginning, the sound produced resembles something between the crowing of a cock and the cackling of a hen, but the march of progress did not stop at this simple melody, and now we may hear an imitation of a sick cat, an ungreased cartwheel, an Indian war whoop, and innumerable other melodies of a like nature. The instrument is easily described and may be given tersely in one of the performer's own words. Take any old tin can, punch a hole in the bottom of it, stick a bit of string through it, and wax the string. It afterward appeared that the performer had also to rosin his fingers, when, by jerking the string suddenly through the hole, the desired music might be produced. We are always pleased to see the inventive faculties of youth developing themselves, but we could wish they had not, in this instance, taken a musical turn. Dulcet though the sounds produced by this invention may be, yet there are limits to everything, and we think that the other side of the city limits should be the place set apart for the performances of these youthful musicians. Meanwhile, tin cans are at a premium, vacant lots are invaded for cast-off preserve caskets, and a boy who does not possess a one-stringed lute is considered of no account by his more fortunate confrères. Hugh here. So by now I had delightedly figured out why that previous article that I read in episode 33 had a reference to rosin. See, at the time, I, I had no idea what kind of a device this squawker was, and the presence of rosin led me to assume there was a string involved, but I didn't know. Corning Journal, March 28, 1871. The boys are up to all sorts of pranks. The latest thing is a toy made out of a tin can with a hole in the bottom. A string is attached, which is passed through the hole, and by using rosin and pressing the string between the fingers, it produces most unearthly sounds like a distressed, croupy rooster. Those that hear the shrieks in the streets evenings think someone must be robbing hen roosts. Hugh here. So with that one, we are getting into the area of legitimate danger, and there's going to be a lot more of that. <clears throat> Patterson Daily Guardian, March 28, 1871. This is Patterson, New Jersey. The toy of the period. The incessant noises heard about our streets are not from chickens, as might be reasonably supposed, but from the latest toy in vogue among the boys. One would imagine that every boy he met had two or three Shanghai roosters in his hat and his jacket pockets filled with banties. The singular noise is made by a contrivance consisting of a tin box, in the bottom of which is fastened a string through a hole. By drawing a piece of rosin over the string is produced a noise that would frighten a timid man half to death if he happened to hear it while passing through some lonely graveyard about midnight, all alone in the midst of a good seized thunder shower. The noise is a cross between the laugh of a rooster and the cackle of a hyena, but boys are boys and they will make a noise. Hudson Daily Star, March 29, 1871. Be careful. Boys should be careful how they perform brilliant solos upon old tin cans by the aid of a string and rosin, as a team of horses took fright in Albany yesterday upon hearing a piece dolefully executed and run away. One of them run against a tree and killed himself. Loss, $300. Hugh here. 
See what I'm talking about? There are multiple stories about horses running wild at this sound. Now, back to Syracuse, April 14th, 1871. Historic headlines will return after this word from our sponsor. Whiting Opera House, Marie Seabach, the great tragedienne, in conjunction with her complete company of distinguished dramatic artists for one night only, her first and only appearance in Syracuse before her departure for Europe. Tuesday evening, April 18th, will be produced Goethe's sublime creation Faust, Faust, Marie Seabach, in her unique, world-renowned role, Marguerite Gretchen, the entire star company in the cast. Admission, $1. Reserved seats in orchestra and dress circle, 50 cents extra. Private boxes, $10. Family circle, gallery, 50 cents only. Sale of seats commences Thursday morning at Reddington and Howe's Music Store. And we're back. The Wheeling Daily Intelligencer, Wheeling, West Virginia, Thursday morning, March 30, 1871. Mr. Kirk Hornbrook, now sojourning in New York, has favored us with late copies of Ben Wood's little paper, The News. In one of them, we find the following item of interest to the boys of Wheeling. The latest juvenile atrocity, the Devil's Fiddle, reached New York about a week since, and now on every street children cry for it, and people with weak nerves cry because of it. Like many other recent inventions, this diabolical contrivance owes its parentage to the West. It was first noticed at Wheeling, West Virginia, and its march across Pennsylvania to this city was heralded by the press in pretty much the same terms as the desolating track of an army of locusts would be. Like Paganini, the performer on this deadly weapon uses but one string, but the horrible discord extracted will drown the noise of a corral of jackasses. Cold Spring Recorder, Cold Spring, New York, April 1st, 1871. The Rooster, this melodious musical instrument, the invention of the genius of Gotham, has been adopted in Cold Spring, and the demand for old tin boxes and fruit cans is very active. Its tones are a combination of the squawk of a kidnapped centenarian hen and the bray of a superannuated jackass. Those who live long enough to become used to the sound will know the meaning of the length of days, which wisdom is represented as holding in her right hand. The horses have entered their protest already. On Tuesday afternoon, the steed of Mr. Peter McGurk lifted up his heels against the nuisance, but he made a mistake and hit the wagon instead of the urchin who insulted his ears with the diabolical noise. This failure to do justice to the rooster subject caused so much chagrin to the horse that he started to hide himself, but was caught by Mr. Joseph Perry and taken home. Hugh here. That was the first, but not the last, suggestion that harm should be done to these boys. Utica Daily Observer, April 1st, 1871. Utica has fortunately escaped the tin rooster nuisance thus far. The police of Albany are arresting the youngsters who resort 
to theft, to obtain rosin for their fingers, to play on this abominable instrument. Portland Daily Press, April 3, 1871. That's uh, Portland, Maine. The mustard box nuisance, nicknamed the Devil's Fiddle, has arrived. A rosined cord drawn through a hole in the bottom of an empty tin box producing a sound like an infuriated rooster. It beats fish horns out and out. In New York, the nuisance is so intolerable, the police arrest every youngster that carries one. Hugh here. Did you notice that bit about the mustard box nuisance? That was the first article that I found that referred to it as being made out of a mustard box. And that gave me a big clue as to the construction of these devices. I googled for images of old mustard boxes from this time, and the results led me to think that uh, mustard at that time came in a tin that was very similar to uh, what we now see in the fancier tea tins, the square or rectangular ones. That will come in important. The Syracuse Daily Journal, April 15, 1871. Historic headlines will return after this brief message. Whiting Opera House, positively two nights only. Entire change of program each evening, Wednesday and Thursday, April 10th and 20th, the great and only San Francisco Minstrels, the original, far-famed Birch, Wombold, Bernard, and Bacchus, San Francisco Minstrels in new acts, the inimitable brigands. Tickets secured three days in advance at Reddington and Howe's Music Store. We now return to our program. Here we are with the Troy Daily Whig, Troy, New York, April 4th, 1871. Boys who indulge in squeal jerks may be interested in the statement that the authorities of an eastern city give, etc., etc. This is the same ad that I already read to you from Syracuse, the, uh, the ad that got me going down this track of investigating the squeal jerks or devil's fiddles. Republican Journal, April 6, 1871. The devil's fiddle hasn't reached our city yet. The old chap is here, but he doesn't play on that instrument. I like that joke. That, that was well done. Portland Daily Press. Uh, again, that's Portland, Maine. April 6, 1871. The devil's fiddle has arrived in town, and the first families have been exposed to its annoyances. The police will have to be called in. <laughs> that was a funny little reference to the, uh, the local aristocracy being annoyed, and therefore the police will have to be called in. Wheeling Daily Intelligen Intelligencer, Wheeling, West Virginia, April 7th. The Devil's Fiddle is the name given by the Boston Traveler to the noisy contrivance consisting of a tin mustard pot, there's a reference to mustard pots again, with a waxed string drawn through the bottom by villainous boys. That journal says a plague of locusts never visited a virtuous people more suddenly than did the devil's fiddle 
the inhabitants. The police have suppressed the nuisance in Boston, and it seems to have subsided in this city, New York Post. So there's a reference to the police being called in to suppress this nuisance. This next one is from the Weymouth, Massachusetts Weekly Gazette and Reporter, April 7th. The boys have adopted a noisy instrument composed of a fruit can and a rosin string with which they outrival the melodious bullfrog and the cock that crowed in the morn. It has been rightly named the devil's fiddle. Hugh here. Again, more animal comparisons. And on to this astonishing item. Uh, This just goes to show that the Portland Daily Press lost their fucking minds over this device. Get a load of this. This is from April 7th. Again, Portland, Maine. The Devil's Fiddles made their appearance in our city on Friday. We killed the first boy we saw with one, and we hope all our readers will follow our example. Hugh here. I get that it's a joke, and uh, jokes about killing little boys uh, just don't really sit that well with me. Um, I don't know. I, I think it was a lot more common to make jokes like that at that time, but still, that was that was kind of bracing. Daily Kennebec Journal, April 10th. The Devil's Fiddle, manufactured from mustard boxes, preserved fruit cans, and even six-quart pails, is finding its way into every part of the state. In this city, it had but a brief popularity. A few days' horrible screeching sufficed to send it to the oblivion to which have been consigned the velocipede and other kindred nuisances. Hugh here. That one was weird to me because I don't recall having heard that the velocipede was that much of a nuisance. Now I need to look into that. Why, why would the velocipede have come to mind as a nuisance on the same level as these supremely annoying noisemakers? If you got any ideas, leave a comment. The Daily Kennebec Journal, April 12th. A lady near Providence, Rhode Island, was so deceived by one of those devil's fiddles the other evening that she sent her daughter out to catch the marauder who was engaged in carrying off her hens. Newburgh, New York, Weekly Telegraph, April 12th. The Devil's Fiddle. This is the name given to the new toy which we described on Monday, and the name is appropriately applied. A Matawan correspondent to the Fish Kill Journal says that Mr. J.B. Gildersleeve on Saturday, while riding home in a light wagon, was leading a horse in the rear of his wagon, which suddenly started at the sound of one of those diabolical toys. The rear horse, in his fright to break loose, upset the seat of the wagon, but was soon calmed down by Mr. G. Fortunately, nothing was broken. Suppress the nuisance. Hugh here. So that was the third story about a horse running wild upon hearing one of these. In the Republican Journal of Belfast, Maine, on April 13, there was this unusual sort of stream of consciousness article that paints quite a vivid picture of life at that time. I'll just read the bit about the devil's fiddle. We heard a devil's fiddle on a 
on Court Street. Shoe Fly, give us a cat concert. So they're saying that a bunch of yowling cats would have been preferable to the sound of this thing. Wheeling Daily Intelligencer. Wow, I can't say Intelligencer. Well, I can always say it the second time, can't I? Wheeling, West Virginia, April 13th. A lady near Providence, Rhode Island, was so deceived by one of these devil's fiddles the other evening that she sent her daughter out to catch the nocturnal marauder who was engaged in carrying off her hens. That's the same story from before. The Chicago Tribune, on April 15th, reprinted the Nantucket article. Then, in Washington, D.C., on April 15th, The terrible toy known among young Americans as the Devil's Fiddle appeared almost simultaneously in England and in this country. In London, it is called Bismarck's Whistle. That's the first instance I could find of the device being called Bismarck's Whistle across the pond. The largest Devil's Fiddles made in this country were manufactured in Maine, where six-quart tin pails were used. They could be heard in the next town. So I'm going to have to try six-quart tin pails. Historic headlines will return after this message. Wilde's Opera House. Immense success of the great Theater Comique Company, numbering 30 artists who appear in a never-ceasing melange of drama, comedy, burlesque, vocalism, ballet, divertissement, negro acts, sketches, eccentricities, songs, dances, a constant change of bill every night. Miss Ada Ray, the beautiful banjoist and vocalist, last week of Millie Tunur, the wonderful aerial gymnast, Ladies can attend any night this week. Popular prices of admission. And we're back. The Knoxville Chronicle on April 16th, Knoxville, Tennessee, reprinted that same Nantucket article. The Buffalo Daily Courier of April 18th. Bismarck's Whistle is the London name for the newly invented Devil's Fiddle. So that story about the, the alternate naming is getting around. That same item was printed in the Troy Daily Wig on April 18th. The Nantucket article was printed in Troy on that same day. Uh, another story about the alternate naming in the Wheeling Intelligencer. The Nantucket story in the Wheeling Daily Register. Knoxville Chronicle printed the Nantucket story. And the New York Herald also printed the Eastern City version of the Nantucket story. Now, a little different story here. April 20th, 1871, Republican Journal of Belfast, Maine. The Devil's Fiddle, those ear-piercing strains that saluted us from every side have at last expired. For a few days the infernal noise raged, fast and furious, and people of sensitive organization would fain stop their ears with something more noise-proof than was the cotton which Biddy wished her master to stop his ears with, while he read to her a letter from her lover. Hugh here. I haven't gotten around to researching Biddy, so anybody want to chime in on that? I'm all ears. 
Another piece on the London name, Bismarck's Whistle, in the Chicago Tribune. Ah, the Troy Daily Whig has a compendium of the names. April 20th. Squid Junks. Satan's Hurdy-Gurdy is the latest name for the Devil's Fiddle. Pig Under a Gate has also been suggested. Nice. I like that one. The Daily Kennebec Journal of Augusta, Maine, reprinted the Nantucket piece. The Daily State Journal in Richmond, Virginia, reprinted the Bismarck's Whistles piece. The Brooklyn Daily Union presented the two different names, Bismarck's Fiddle and Devil's uh, Bismarck's Whistle and Devil's Fiddle, as did the Rutland Herald of Rutland, Vermont. Now, here's a nice little poem in the Daily Kennebec Journal of Augusta, Maine. Mr. Watch-His-Name, having heard the devil's fiddle, relieved his excited feelings and acquitted himself of a moral duty to the boys by indicting the following. How do the busy little brats improve upon their toys and find new pleasure every day in some unearthly noise? What pains they take to find a box and rig it with a string, that they may rack our quivering nerves with the infernal thing. Let dogs delight to bark and bite their discord we can bear. Let turkey gobblers, pigs, and hens their sentiments declare. Ought children you should ne'er be let to torture those tin cans. Our eardrums were not made to split, nor any other man's. Again, I haven't had time to research the name that's clearly presented here as Watts. Mr. Watts, his name, capital W-A-T-T-S. Evidently, some poem, uh, poet named Watts wrote that. Rochester Evening Express, on May 3rd, printed the same poem. Now, this article is one that I am incredibly grateful for, because it led me to find a fantastic illustration. This is in the Ovid B. of Seneca County, Wednesday, May 31st, 1871. Literary Notices Oliver Optics Magazine for June. This pet of juvenile America appears with increased attractions. Oliver Optics and Elijah Kellogg's stories are completed and new ones promised for the next issue. Sophie May's story, The Doctor's Daughter, increases in interest. Among the particular attractions are a full-page illustration. Our Boy's Last Sensation, in which the Squid Dunk, or Devil's Fiddle, plays a prominent part. Aha, said I. Let's see if I luck out and find a free copy of that Oliver Optics magazine of June 1871 online. And wouldn't you know it, Google has it. Go to the show notes. You absolutely want to see this fantastic illustration. There's a little urchin sitting on a barrel with a dog and a rooster yowling at him, one on either side. And 
after you after you take in those items in the foreground you take a look in the background and there is a shopkeeper with a stick raised above his head and he is about to brain that kid who is pulling on the string leading into a can in his left hand. In the further background, there is a gentleman who I believe is in the act of dropping a cane and is looking behind him in annoyance because another urchin is pulling out another string attached to another tin can right behind him. So it appears that there are two urchins who are either working in tandem or are just representatives of an omnipresent nuisance running wild throughout the city. And once I took all this in, I realized the implications of that name. Our boy's last sensation. That doesn't mean latest sensation that's going around the city. It means the last sensation this kid felt before he got brained with a stick. <laughs> Again, a lot of uh, unapologetic jokes about killing children. Moving on to the Marathon New York Independent of June 13, 1871. That contains a reference to the same magazine, Oliver Optics. Rutland Herald, again, July 13th. A substitute for the devil's fiddle. So this tells us just how quickly this fad came in and then swept out. The mission of the 17-year locusts has apparently been discovered. It having been ascertained that these celebrated insects have not visited the Northwest for the purpose of devouring the crops, as the farmers had anticipated, it came to be a question what under heaven they did come for. Some light has been thrown upon this riddle by a Janesville paper, which states that the schoolboys of that vicinity are wont to, der to derive much happiness from filling their pockets with the tuneful locusts. And when school exercises are well underway, at a signal from the baton of their leader, tap their pockets simultaneously, causing the insects to join in a chorus which entirely drowns all other noises within a quarter of a mile and precludes all other business while the concert is progressing. If the much-abused representative of the Cicadian family shall thus serve to cheer the thorny pathway of young America up the hill of science, he will not have lived in vain. Chicago Tribune. Hugh here. So there's another reference to Young America, capital Y, capital A. And again, it's an indication that the fad seems to be moving on. I'm dubious about this one. Boys stuffing their pockets with locusts. I can't imagine the sound is nearly as annoying as what has been previously described, but I don't know. The Saratogian, Saratoga Springs, New York, April 27th. The terrible toy known among young Americans as the Devil's Fiddle appeared almost simultaneously in England and in, in this country. In London, it is called Bismarck's Whistle. So that's a slight variant on the Bismarck's Whistle piece. Um, that's 
a little dubious again that it appeared almost simultaneously. I don't know about that. The research I've done tends to indicate that it, it came into use on this continent somewhere around 1869. I should say into wide use. Uh, I, I have an idea that it was actually known around here uh, for decades before that, but not sure. Marysville Daily Appeal, Marysville, California, March 16th, 1872. Several runaways have been caused within a few days by the new musical nuisance made with a tin can and a bit of rosin string called the Devil's Fiddle, now so popular with the boys of this city. The supervisors will pass a law prohibiting the fiddles entirely at the next session. Over 100 of the hideous things were confiscated by the teachers of Lincoln School yesterday. Hugh here. So, that was almost a year that passed in between 150 years ago right now and March 16, 1872. I don't know if the spread from the East Coast to California took that long in general, or if that particular town just happened to be late. State Rights Democrat, Albany, Oregon, March 29, 1872. Portland papers are in agony over the Devil's Fiddle, a new musical instrument just introduced there. Washington Standard, April 6, 1872. Olympia, Washington. San Francisco, April 1st. The citizens of the 7th Ward held a meeting last night and gave a concert on devil's fiddles, tin cans, and horns, burned Senator-elect Sargent and several others implicated in the Goat Island scheme in effigy and passed a resolution denouncing them as enemies to the constituents and the state including members of the legislature who voted in favor of it. Hugh here. So, I know I hit you with a lot. I wanted to give you the same effect that I had upon first reading that. It's kind of dizzying trying to wade into that hornet's nest of politics and culture to try to tease something out from context. If you go to the show notes, you'll see an article that, that I found in the Placer Herald of... Auburn, California, from June 22nd, 1872. I'll read you a little bit from that about Sargent's Goat Island job. The more thoroughly the motives of the Central Pacific Railroad Company in seeking possession of Goat Island in San Francisco Harbor are investigated, the more indefensible appears the stupendous job which its agents in Congress are endeavoring to carry through. The natural indignation of the Californians against Sargent, the principal engineer of this scheme, for his action in the matter is heightened by the misrepresentations to which he resorted in order to mislead the House of Representatives in regard to the true bearings of the measure he was advocating, thus adding perversion of the truth to his treachery to the interests of the state he pretends to represent. In the discussion which took place in the House while the Goat Island Bill was pending in that branch of Congress, Mr. Sargent occupied an anomalous position. He assumed to be a representative of the, 
representative of the people of California, and a fair witness as to the condition of affairs in that state, whereas in reality he was the tool of a huge monopoly, which was endeavoring to inflict a deadly injury on the interests of his constituents at the expense of the country at large, and in furtherance of the designs of this monopoly, he availed himself of his position as the nominal representative of the people, not only to misrepresent the wishes of that people, but to give currency to unjust charges, seriously affecting their reputation and calculated to injure their commercial interests and material prosperity. The demands of the Central Pacific Railroad in relation to the grant of Goat Island have been pushed with a degree of insolence without parallel in the history of congressional jobbery. Hugh here. So basically, the population of uh, some of the citizens of San Francisco were burning this guy, Sergeant, in effigy because they were up in arms about him acting as a shill for the Central Pacific Railroad Company in an attempt to just give half of Goat Island in San Francisco Bay to that railroad company. And this gives you some clue of how annoying these devices were because the people who were raising a ruckus and burning this guy in effigy used devil's fiddles. All right, Weekly Miner of Prescott, Arizona says, This instrument of music, M-E-W-S-I-C, which is said to beat a combined effort on the part of dogs, cats, donkeys, and bullfrogs, has reached Austin, Nevada, and been aimed at the editor of the Reveille, who pronounces its music orid. We have no more doubt of its oridity than we have of the scalpidity of an Apache war whoop. Okay. Gold Hill Daily News, May 8th, 1872. The Devil's Fiddle. This fearful instrument has never been adopted by the juveniles of Gold Hill or Virginia, and it is to be hoped it never will, if what is said of it by our exchanges is true. The Stockton Republican thus describes the instrument. The noisy instrument called the Devil's Fiddle has arrived, and in it we recognize an old acquaintance under a new name. When we were a boy, and at the mention of the word our mind flies back something less than three-quarters of a century, this same Devil's Fiddle was popular among the youths of our town, and was then known as the Dumb Bull, though how it came by this name we never could make out, as it was anything but dumb in the hands of a skillful manipulator. The method of getting them up was something in this way. A large tin or zinc cylinder was procured. Over one end was drawn a dressed cat or groundhog skin after the manner of a drumhead. After this had dried and become perfectly tight, an all-hole was made in the center, through which was drawn a shoemaker's waxed thread with a knot on the end to prevent it from slipping through. To operate on the instrument, you rosin the thumb and forefinger of your glove, and, inserting your arm at the end of the cylinder, gently draw the waxed head thread through between the rosin thumb and finger. 
The act produces a sound, the like of which has never been heard since the toot from the scriptural ram's horn. But the dumb bull has degenerated to an oyster can and a bit of sewing thread. The devil's whistle is the squeaking son of a roaring sire, and the sooner he is banished from the city, the better. Hugh here. So this dumb bull is much more elaborate than the devil's fiddle. And if you go to the show notes and keep scrolling down, you'll see something like this dull bull described. Now here's an interesting piece from the Placer Herald, Auburn, California, May 11th, 1872, House and Farm. To protect trees from birds, some time since, Mr. M. E. Emerson of Strawberry Valley enclosed the following description of a, of a device for the protection of fruit trees from birds, and also for protection to the birds by keeping them away from the trees while the fruit is ripening. Mr. E. has found the device very effectual for the purpose designed, having used it for three years, and as it can be made by any schoolboy during one or two leisure evenings, it is well worth trying. Of course, several of these machines would be required for a large orchard. There is no patent for the device, and Mr. Emerson sends it to us for illustration and description for the benefit of all. This machine is propelled by wind, and the noise is created by the ringing of a bell, the rattling of a can, and the clattering of springs on cogs, or what is termed a horse fiddle. It is probably a first cousin to the devil's fiddle, which has been found to be such a nuisance in the hand, hands of noisy boys. And it goes on to give an elaborate description of this device, and there's no illustration, which just absolutely amazes me to think that people of this time were capable of drawing up plans or building this thing from this textual description, which looks for all the world like Ikea instructions without the illustrations. Uh, these people must have been supremely well-versed in the art of building from text descriptions. The other point I wanted to make about that is that this person is comparing the devil's fiddle to this mechanical noisemaker with bells and rattling cans and clattering springs on cogs, it really has nothing to do with the devil's fiddle. So that goes to show you how ubiquitous this noisemaker, the devil's fiddle, was because they, they clearly wanted a way to shoehorn a reference to the devil's fiddle into this story when it wasn't really appropriate. Putnam County Courier, Carmel, New York. Saturday, May 18, 1872, the City Council of San Francisco has just passed an ordinance which provides that any person, not being a professional musician or employed in that capacity, who shall, in a public place in the city, toot or blow a horn or use and perform upon an instrument or thing commonly called and designated as the devil's fiddle shall be deemed guilty of a misdemeanor and punished by a fine not exceeding $20 or by imprisonment in the county jail not exceeding 10 day. So that is a modification of the <clears throat> Nantucket Ordinance. Madison County Times 
Hey, my old stomping ground. I grew up in Madison County. This is from Chittenango, May 18, 1872. That paper ran that same article about the San Francisco Ordinance. As did the Nunda Times of Nunda, New York. And now we come to one of the most modern-sounding stream-of-consciousness pieces I have ever encountered in six years of studying these newspapers. I wish it were from a less disgusting source. This is from the Weekly Caucasian of June 1st, 1872. Read the whole article by following the link in the show notes. This is from the... A writer's sardonic, exasperated, sarcastic, nasty write-up of the state editorial convention. Uh, Let me see here. Where do I want to jump into this stream of consciousness? Ah, McCullough of the Kansas City Journal organized his diabolical Gideon's Band, an asthmatic accordion, wheezing and groaning like a thousand moribund Thomas cats on a moonlit woodshed, a pair of clashing cymbals, three big horns blown by fellows ignorant of a note, and two drums pounded out of all time, rhyme or reason, all this conglomeration of sonorous horribles as an accompaniment to old John Brown, bald in tympanum-cracking discord, discorus, by a dozen hoarse discordant bulligator voices. Ugh, a legion of devil's fiddles would have been love's gentlest breathing notes beside it. Hugh here. So again, this writer is using a very common meme of uh, obsession with devil's fiddles to uh, compare them favorably to this horrible ordeal he had to sit through. The New York Sun on June 19th printed another lengthy account of the San Francisco folks who were burning a uh, burning sergeant in effigy over the goat Island affair on a sash across the shoulder were inscribed the names of the smaller traders and while the devil's fiddles and the populace groaned in unison and the cans and horns were taxed to do their loudest the representatives of the people's hatred and contempt burned crackled and dissolved in smoke and this is while the uh, the effigy with a placard, Sergeant the Traitor, is burning. The Delaware Republican, Delaware County, New York, July 6th, 1872. A new toy has appeared, delightful to juveniles as the devil's fiddle of a year ago. It consists of a triangular-shaped bag of heavy paper, which will send out a report like a pistol when held at one corner and given a quick downward motion. I have no idea what that's about. I, I'm going to need to do more research on that device, but the point here is that uh, it seems like the devil's fiddle came and went, 
pretty quickly it was uh, supplanted by different noisemakers. That same article about the triangular-shaped bag of heavy paper appeared in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle on July 10, 1872, and also in the Hudson Daily Star on July 12th. Now here's an interesting one. The Wheeling Daily Register, Wheeling, West Virginia, July 22, 1872, police court. Saturday's docket showed three cases, though but one was heard. Michael Thaney was arrested on Friday evening by Officer Junkins, making the neighborhood of the Second Ward Market House musical by exhibiting his powers as a yelpist, having a voice of a cross between the devil's fiddle the boys used to have here and a Shanghai rooster with a bad cold. His success was immense and only limited by the strength of his lungs. He was fined a dollar and costs. Being without ducats, he received a ticket to Professor Price's Geological School. Hugh here. So again, that's only a year and change after the height of this fad. And they're in Wheeling, West Virginia, they're referring to the Devil's Fiddle as something the boys used to have here. Seems to have came and went pretty quickly, but I don't know how much of that was because of a natural tendency to move on to the next thing, and how much of it was because of ordinances against it. Red Hook Journal, Red Hook, New York, August 2nd, 1872. That's another reprint of the triangular-shaped bag article. And then the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, on September 11th of 1872, says... Pittsburgh boys have a lovely new toy. It is called a bassoon, and beside it the sound of the devil's fiddle becomes dulcet, and tin trumpets are a sweet reminiscence. Hugh here. I don't know if that's serious at all, or if maybe the word bassoon was used to refer to another type of noisemaker. Clearly, boys in the streets did not have full-size bassoons. It's possible they're just making a joke about how annoying bassoons are. I don't know. And the Utica Daily Observer printed that same bassoon story on September 27th. The New Orleans Republican on September 29th, 1872 prints another story involving uh, a lot of noisemakers. Two days since, a young man named Thomas Smith married the daughter of John McComb, the money broker. Smith is a money broker and is 21 years of age. He resides on Fair Oak Street, where he owns a fine residence. A lot of young hoodlums, some of which, it seems, were schoolmates of Mrs. Smith, while she was Miss McComb, determined to treat her and her husband to a regular old-fashioned charivarie. Accordingly, last night, about half-past nine o'clock, they approached the house, about fifty strong, in age ranging from twelve to eighteen years. They were plentifully provided with kettles, horns, drums, devil's fiddles, triangles, and every imaginary instrument which would make a discordant noise. Suddenly the stillness of the night was broken by such a terrible conglomeration of horrible sounds that the whole neighborhood thought Bedlam had broken loose. In a few moments, an enraged bridegroom in a nightshirt 
was seen at a window. Hugh here. So basically the bridegroom comes out all angry and uh, eventually pays them to go away. State Rights Democrat, Albany, Oregon, November 29th, 1872. This is the way a newly married couple got their start at Yamhill last week, according to the reporter. Mr. and Mrs. Robert Gray, after their union last evening, were the recipients of a serenade in which the lively notes of the cowbell and the pathetic strains of the tin horn mingled with the deep bass of the dry goods box drum and the dulcet devil's fiddle until the happy pair capitulated and the boys went away with a luncheon of cake under their vests. So that's two stories in a row about newlyweds being serenaded with noisemakers, including the devil's fiddle. State rights Democrat again, Albany, Oregon, February 7th, 1873 now. Minstrelsy. Now look out for agonizing deaths in the neighborhood of this office. One of our Jures has a fiddle and a toot horn, another has a guitar, and the devil has a swinette, a sort of cross between a Chinese gong and the devil's fiddle. If we are able to stand this living death for a year or two more, we shall probably turn out a lecturer on what we know about pandemonium. In the meantime, we can't answer to life insurance companies for the death of our near neighbors. Moving on to June 2nd, 1873, the New York Herald ran a long article about our late long parliament at Albany and its voluminous record. And again, this is an example of the devil's fiddle being used as an annoying noisemaker. While such important measures were pending in the Assembly as the Supply Bill and the bill in relation to the Elmira Reformatory, a bill singularly appropriate to the occasion, the House was engaged in a provincial burlesque of Humpty Dumpty. Brimming over with youthful hilarity, many of the members had provided themselves with small tin trumpets, squawkers, penny whistles, fish horns, and children's Christmas rattles, these rattles being very convenient because the member possessing one, while looking the speaker honestly in the face and calling for order, could, with one hand under his desk, keep up a distracting din without detection. The medley of this legislative orchestra of rattles, squawkers, whistles, and fish horns, combined with the chorus of Old Bob Ridley, Indian war whoops, crowings, cacklings, barkings, calls to order, and uproarious laughter, accompanied by the incessant rapping of the speaker's hammer, was doubtless exceedingly amusing, but it was a disgraceful spectacle. So that's an example of... Albany legislation being slowed down to a standstill by these noisemakers. Watertown Daily Times, October 22, 1873. A boon for the nervous. A Peekskill paper says that the village boys down along the Hudson have a new toy which makes the devil's fiddle turn pale. This new device is described as a whistle with an air piston 
on the end, which operates like a syringe and sounds a frantic variety of ear-piercing notes. We trust some of our enterprising Albany boys will obtain the right to operate this new musical instrument in this county without delay. For a nice, gentle serenade, what could be nicer? Albany Journal. Watertown is well supplied with these musical instruments. One of our youths went out serenading last night, and judging from the careful manner in which he sits down this morning, we think he got the soul right for operating them. <laughs> so, again, a reference to violence against boys for using these devices, and uh, a reference to the one-upsmanship and the, uh, the arms race of these noisemakers, uh, because apparently the devil's fiddle is, is being replaced by something even more shrill. Watertown Republican, May 6th, 1874. The devil's fiddle nuisance has broken out in Sacramento in its most violent form. Same article printed in the Superior Wisconsin Times, May 9th, 1874. Now, again, I want you to go to the show notes and take a look at these illustrations and instructions from The Magician's Own Book. This is from 1871. So this set of instructions for the Bismarck's whistle and for uh, what seems to be more or less the same thing referred to above as that uh, dull bull, are laid out. Uh, this book was published right around the peak of the Devil's Fiddle craze. The Grange Advance, Red Wing, Minnesota, March 16, 1875. Nothing is more unpleasant than a loud, harsh, or sharp voice in a teacher. But the worst of the matter is that the possessors of such voices are inordinately fond of using them. From opening to close of school, poor children must sit under the oral infliction. Teachers with lungs hardly strong enough to keep them alive will use those lungs as with forty horsepower when the ordinary conversational tone would be the fitting one to use. The boys in our large cities had in use a few years ago a vicious instrument of music which they fondly called the devil's fiddle. Whatever imp invented it must have been inspired with a feeling of revenge towards saw-filers and loud-voiced teachers. Huh. So that one is looking almost wistfully back just four years at the devil's fiddle. Uh, again, that goes to show how quickly these fads came and went. The Cortland Standard and Journal on January 4th, 1876, ran a long letter from their New York City correspondent uh, the day before Christmas. And I'll skip to the bottom to the relevant bit. Uh, Business was generally suspended throughout the city. All day long the streets, though damp and muddy, were filled with stylish equipages, and the walks were crowded with troops of ladies and children in holiday attire, accompanied by a goodly number of the sterner sex. The additional wearers of sealskins in the throngs told 
what Santa Claus had done for some, and the troops of urchins with discordant drums, squawkers, tin horns, horse fiddles, and bangers, making life for the moment hideous, gave evidence that their fathers had provided for their small needs also. The Democratic Times, August 3, 1877, Jacksonville, Oregon. An instrument, evidently a cross between a devil's fiddle and a Jew's harp, and engineered by a festive tramp, this week amused the average hoodlum with what once were shoe-fly, the doxology, Captain Jinks, etc. The Camden Advance, October 16, 1878, publishes that same article about the device that makes the devil's fiddle turn pale, uh, the whistle with an air piston on the end. And one final article, The Herald of Perry, New York, April 18, 1879. The small boy is making himself conspicuous with his contemptible squawker just now. So this just barely gets a passing mention at this point, only eight years after the explosion of this device. It's really more just a background annoyance that the writer just passes off almost casually. So, as I said in the beginning, I can't exactly give to you a detailed picture, a detailed uh, olfactory landscape, a detailed sonic landscape, but I can give you one sound straight from the 19th century, because this devil's fiddle from all of these articles was exceedingly simple to make, so I went ahead and made some replicas. Go to the show notes, you can see my handiwork. I made four different kinds, one from a coffee container, one from a small tin can, one from a somewhat larger tin can, and one from a tea tin. And again, I never would have thought of using the tea tin if not for those articles about the mustard box nuisance and looking up uh, mustard boxes and finding out that they they were reminiscent of tea tins. So I'm going to cut now to one or two recordings that I made up on the roof because I did not dare make any more of the hideous noises that came out of these things once I started using them. Seriously, my, my wife and my toddler were both upset with me. And I had to go up to the roof to, uh, to give these things full throat. Folks, the newspapers of 1871 were not exaggerating. Check this out. All right, I don't know how well this is going to come out because it's very windy up here on the roof. Don't dare do it inside because it's going to piss folks off, but uh, here we go. This is the Trader Joe's coffee container.
right. Here's the standard size soup can. I think it's 13 ounces. Now I'm going to hold the string closer to the can and see if the, the tone changes. This is the larger soup can. Progresso. I think it's like 16 or 18 ounces. I'm going to hold the string closer. And now, my favorite. This is a 10 Wrens King's Oolong 103 tin. That's T. It's a, it's a T tin. Nice. All right, those are the four that I made. You see what I mean? Again, I don't think it was so much the volume, but rather the uncanny animalistic sounds that freaked out people and horses so much. Can you see why people called these devices roosters? There were a couple of times when I was uh, when I was coaxing sounds out of uh, out of those cans and string that I was absolutely reminded of of roosters and also turkey calls. It makes me wonder why anybody has ever bothered going to the trouble of making what I think of as a, a turkey call out of wood when I can literally make one that sounds the same, from what I can remember, out of trash and some rosin. So there you have it. A sound straight to you from 1871. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he stole away.